Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director here at Long Now. I'm coming to you from upstairs behind the bookshelves at the interval from the offices of the Long Now. Genevieve Bell will be joining us live from Australia to watch this edited version of her talk tonight, and will be answering questions afterwards from you, as well as Kevin Kelly from the Long Now board. Genevieve has spent a career first at Intel and more recently with her own new institute, trying to understand the relationship between humans and technology. I like to think of her work as trying to answer whether or not technology has a soul, and possibly more importantly, do we actually want it to? Welcome, Genevieve Bell. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. Hi, and thank you for that incredibly gracious introduction. It's really uh, daunting to be here. The roll call of people in this seminar series is a roll call of people who built the world that we live in and who built the world that I've inhabited for the last 25 years. What I wanted to do over the next half an hour was unfold a story about the fourth industrial revolution and the three that preceded it and the questions that they raise for me and hopefully for you and the kinds of ways we ought to be thinking about the future and how we want to inhabit and live in it. There are lots of ways to introduce myself and lots of ways to talk about who I am and why I care about these issues, but here are the important pieces. What you need to know is that I'm an anthropologist uh, by training and by birth in some ways. I'm the daughter of an anthropologist too. I grew up on my mother's field sites in central and northern Australia in the 1970s and 1980s. I grew up in Aboriginal communities with Indigenous people who remembered their first sight of cattle and of Europeans and of fences, and not always in that order, and who for the arc of my childhood took me onto their country, told me their stories and taught me how to be in that place. It was an extraordinary childhood. Uh, it's a really long way from those places in the Northern Territory to America and to Silicon Valley in particular, where I have worked on and off for the last, well, nearly 25 years. I did my PhD at Stanford. My area of expertise was Native American ethno-history, feminist and queer theory. You can imagine how that background lands you a job at Intel. <laughs> the only real good answer to that involves the 1990s, the dot-com boom, and a bar in Palo Alto that's long since gone. But in my time at Intel, my responsibility was to help bring insights about what people care about, what frustrates them, what they want for themselves, their kids, their countries, their communities, and bring all of those insights into the way we make new technology and drive different kinds of technical innovation. Effectively, my job was to haunt the building with the voices of the people who couldn't be there otherwise, to put people back into the way we build technology or sometimes just put them into the way we build technology. Uh, that was an extraordinary gig. Uh, it was an extraordinary place to be and it was an amazing set of adventures. Three years ago, I decided to come back to Australia and return to my hometown and help build a new set of adventures here at the Australian National University. 
I get to spend my days and my time thinking about what it means to build the future and what it means to build next generation technical systems. But because I'm sitting in Australia, there's a way we like to begin all talks and all conversations with what we would call an acknowledgement of country. And I want to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land upon which I'm standing today. This is Ngunnawal and Ngambri land, always sacred and never ceded. And I want to pay my respects to the elders past and present of this place. And I also want to acknowledge that this conversation is unfolding across many places today. And I want to pay my respects to the traditional elders and elders of all those places too. It means a lot to me to get to say that. It means a lot to me to get to think about and be responsible for paying attention to the places we find ourselves and of remembering that we live in a country that's been continuously occupied for nearly 60,000 years. Here in Australia, Aboriginal people built a world and a world system. They built technologies, they built ways to manage this place and they did it at levels and with degrees of complexity that are genuinely remarkable. And for me, every conversation about the future unfolds in a place that's always been building the future. And that responsibility to tell those stories and to carry through that knowledge is part and parcel of why I'm happy to be home and why I take it incredibly seriously to remember where I am and what that place's history is. And I wanted to share just a little bit of that history with all of you because I know that may sound unexpected. And I wanted to talk a little bit about a system that's built here in Australia. It's on the border of Queensland and New South Wales. It's on a river system called the Barwon, and it's literally inside a town called Bawarana, which is sitting right on the Barwon River. So in this town called Bawarana, there is today an archaeological site. Uh, it's the site of a series of fish traps. It's the largest and oldest set of fish traps in Australia. It's nearly two kilometres long and it's a series of stones made in the shape of fishnets. And what this entire system did over this massive piece of a river was create the capacity to trap fish, whether they were going upstream or downstream, and to hold them in pens in cool running water when the water was low and when the water was high. And the reason that you did that here on this river was that it was a meeting place. It was a place where multiple different nations gathered. It was a place where multiple families gathered. And it was a place where ceremonies and ritual and knowledge was built and exchanged. And in order to make that happen, you needed to have food at scale. The most remarkable thing about this system, archeologists estimate its age to be 40,000 years old. It is in fact, the oldest known technical system built by humans on the planet. The last time we have a recorded use of this system is in about 1915. So if you're sitting somewhere listening to this and you've built a technical system, imagine building a technical system that would last for 40,000 years. Most of us are lucky if we built a system that lasted for 10. It's also a system that suggests an understanding of technologies, in this case, lithics, stone. It's a system that suggests an understanding of the ecosystem and the environment and one that was changing over this period of time. And it's a system that suggests a profound insight into how human beings work. And for me, those three pieces, technical, cultural, and ecological, are incredibly significant. As we think about building technical systems, we need to build them with multiple pieces in mind, not just the technology, but the ecological piece and the human piece. It's a useful way of framing how the current technical systems should and could unfold. 
So if that's a story of a technical, social, cultural system I'm willing to bet most of you haven't heard about, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and move 40,000 years forward and talk about some systems I suspect many of us know a little bit better. This is a chart published by the World Economic Forum in 2016. It's a chart that crystallized a conversation that had been circling for quite some time about this notion of the fourth industrial revolution. What the World Economic Forum did in 2016 was give that conversation form and structure. What they also did was give the fourth industrial revolution a backstory. They made it part of a series of earlier waves of history and waves of economic and technical transformation. Of course, in doing that, they also stabilized both that history and the context and consequences of that history. They also made a fetish of the technical systems and in some ways made quite mysterious what the consequences of those transformations had been to human society, to culture. And in some ways, what's also missing from this story is the story of who made that possible and both individual biographies and the kind of practices and practitioners that had to develop. So what would happen if you revisit all these revolutions with an eye to two questions. What did it take to get to scale in each one of those moments and what did scale look like? And the reason for asking those questions of the first three industrial revolutions is to help position ourselves to think more critically about this fourth one. So the first industrial revolution starts in many places, but one of them is Cornwall in 1712, atop a mine with a man named Thomas Newcomen. Newcomen was an ironmonger and a preacher and a man who occasionally helped save miners from the bottom of flooded mines. It's in that latter context that he helped come up with the idea of the atmospheric engine, which is really the prototype of all steam engines to follow. He was an inventor and an innovator, and in 1712, he took a whole lot of other people's ideas and built them into a single object. It was two stories high, it was loud, it consumed everything around it, water and coal, and it also changed everything too. It took a while before anyone worked out just what a powerful object this was. It's 20 years before you get to 100 of these objects in circulation. It's nearly 100 years before you get to 2000. But in that slow, steady ramp of the atmospheric engine with Watt's transformations in it into the steam engine, what you see is an object that moves from mines into factories and changes the way factory work is done. It changes the possibilities of how things can be built. It makes a series of complicated cultural and practical transformations. But in some ways, the most important moment of scale isn't that first century, but the second. And it comes in 1829 at a place called Rainhill in England, when a locomotive called the Rocket changes the way we thought about steam engines. They go from being stationary to mobile. They go from being powerful to being fast. And in so doing, unleash the possibility of creating networks of trains and railway systems. But to get to a railway system required more than just a locomotive. It required regulation, regulation that fixed train prices so that everyone could have access to the technology, that managed safety so that the trains didn't hurt people, that changed the ideas about how time should be configured so the trains would run on time. It took ideas about timetables, ideas about uh, who had rights in land, it took regulations, it took all kinds of new practitioners, ticket takers, and safety inspectors and civil engineers. And those train systems unfolded in Britain and the United States and Australia and Japan and India, and in so doing transformed the way we thought about time and distance and about speed. The irony, of course, in all of this is that Industrial Revolution was nearly two centuries in the making. 
So getting to scale in this instance took time and it required all manner of regulations and social actors and practice to be accomplished. So if the first industrial revolution is anchored on steam, the second industrial revolution is anchored on electricity, but it's many of the same challenges. The unfolding of electricity takes decades. The very first displays of electricity are in the 1850s at the Crystal Palace in England as a spectacle, as world expositions, world's fairs, the Battle of Light in Paris in 1881. It is an ongoing thing, even the Great White Way in New York City, where you took people to see electricity, was all about how did you convince people that they needed this new infrastructure? Because people had ways of lighting their homes and powering things. They had steam, they had gas. Why did they need electricity? So part of the challenge for the second industrial revolution was actually compelling people to imagine they should upgrade. Of course, it also required whole new systems. It wasn't just enough to make light and make power. It required having someone to generate the power. It required an electrical grid. It required an incredible argument about what was the best way to configure that grid, AC or DC. What was the best way to imagine doing all the work you needed to do to upgrade and retrofit buildings? What new appliances and experiences would need to be created? It took individual actors in different countries. It took an entire apparatus to get to scale. Whether it is, in fact, Thomas Edison in the United States, who not only uh, gets light bulbs down to a reasonable price that they can be marketed, but builds the first electrical power plants in order to generate the electricity to make the lights work. In Britain, getting electricity to scale required civic and civil organizations. It required people like Carolyn Hazlitt and the Electrical Association for Women that helped empower British housewives and homemakers to troubleshoot their own appliances and keep things running. It required a whole set of different conversations with businesses. And all of that, much like the first industrial revolution, took time. From the first experiments with electricity to the first electrification of power into manufacturing facilities is nearly 50 years. And the consequences of changing mass production or making mass production meant we also had to build new kinds of companies, new kinds of business models, new kinds of corporations, and even new kinds of practitioners. So much like that first industrial revolution, getting to scale was a complicated puzzle. For the third industrial revolution, it's the one that for many of us in the room, we may remember some of the beginnings of this. The third industrial revolution is about automation and digitization. And the technology that is required to take to scale here is the computer. Starting with the earliest computers in the 1940s, you really don't hit ubiquity of the object until the 1960s. But part of what really takes computers to scale in this instance isn't just the availability of computers, it's the creation of two things. Programming languages that let people talk to computers and let them do things beyond the obvious, but also the invention of a curriculum for computer science to help bring a whole lot of people into the conversation. So starting in the early 1960s, there were a number of people all over the United States who were using computers in their research jobs and in their professional jobs. And starting in the mid-1960s, a whole collection of different people at American universities started to imagine what would it be like to teach people to use these computers so that they weren't just branded objects sitting inside companies, but they could become platforms upon which many things could happen. By 1968, an initial curriculum has been created to teach computer science. It gets called computer science because up until then it was computing. There is now a curriculum. That curriculum does two things. 
it creates the possibility that a whole lot of people can have a shared experience and a shared vocabulary. It also creates the possibility that all the ways you could think about computing is no longer tied to the objects of now, but creates the possibility of other objects to come into existence. It's kind of remarkable for me to imagine that that first curriculum first saw the light of day at Stanford University where I did my PhD. You can still go and look at that original curriculum. You can see the first textbook that was produced by George Forsyth and his remarkable wife, Alexandra. That textbook is amazing, if only because when you open it, you think, yep, yeah, those are all pretty much still the things we need to think about. It has a lovely way of describing an algorithm and some glorious examples for how to think about things. But imagining what it took to get a piece of technology to scale in the 20th century involved commercial enterprises, it involved universities, and it involved the creation of a vocabulary and a set of questions that would let many more people engage with those machines and do things with them that were unimaginable. It also, of course, involved the continuing evolution of the technical system. It involved things like Moore's Law and companies like Intel and AMD continuing to revolutionize and innovate on those technical platforms. It involved the creation of a whole lot of other objects that took on compute power and made them meaningful. But again, it took time, it took social actors, it took an extraordinary number of practitioners. And it's still, much like the first two industrial revolutions, not entirely done yet. And that gets us to the fourth industrial revolution, anchored around the notion of AI. The first stories about AI, or the first time that term was coined, 1956, Dartmouth, June, July, and August. But really, we'd been talking about machines thinking long before that. Uh, at the Macy's conferences in New York City in the 1940s and 1950s, with Alan Turing at Bletchley Park and Manchester in the United Kingdom, there'd been many conversations about what it might mean to make machines think like humans. The unfolding of AI and the accumulation of expertise and theories and practice has been decades in the unfolding. But when we talk about the fourth industrial revolution, we're talking about more than just AI. We're talking about AI as part of a system. And we're talking about a system that is going to have to expand to include not just AI, but the systems in which it finds itself. The Internet of Things, fast and rapid telecommunications protocols, all of it ultimately also built on the second and third industrial revolutions of the computing platform and the electrical grid. Of course, it's an industrial revolution that's in the beginning stages. The technology is 60 years old, but what it will mean to go successfully to scale feels like something that is going to take a whole lot of incredible complexity and raise a whole lot of really quite complicated questions. For me, I think it's easy to talk about scale. Scale is clearly the logic that runs through the Industrial Revolution, along with ideas about efficiencies and ideas about productivity. I want to suggest that this fourth wave is a slightly different than the waves that come before it. We have that history. It doesn't just inform how we think, but it could help us ask better questions about the future that is coming. I want to be concerned about what it means to have safe, responsible, and sustainable cyber-physical systems, not just productive and efficient ones. What would it mean to say that the systems we are building shouldn't just go to scale, but they should go to scale in a way that feels like something we can live with? After all, when we talk about the first industrial revolution, we could also talk about the Luddites, we could talk about pollution, 
We could talk about the consequences of chopping down so much lumber to feed those inexhaustible trains. If we talked about the second industrial revolution and electricity, we could also talk about what it meant to have mass production and what that meant to ideas about labor and what it meant to factory conditions. If we talk about the third industrial revolution and computing, we can talk about notions about privacy and trust and security and risk and all of the energy it takes to make those systems functional. There are many cautionary tales inherent in all those earlier industrial revolutions. And for me, imagining what it means to build the fourth one in a manner that we can all live with feels like we should be paying attention to those lessons too. And lurking in all those stories about the earlier industrial revolutions are also stories about the people who made it possible. Not just the business owners and the inventors, but the practitioners and the workers who made those systems go to scale safely. Engineers, electrical engineers, computer scientists, and who are gonna be those practitioners for that fourth wave? And so part of the reason I came back to Australia was that I was convinced that we needed something different, that this fourth wave of the Industrial Revolution demanded a different set of conversations and a different set of skills. And for me, I think what it actually requires is establishing a new branch of engineering. And so that's what we've been doing here at the institute that I run at the Australian National University. No small thing. Always helps to have spent 20 years in Silicon Valley. You can kind of square your shoulders and say, yep, I'm establishing a new branch of engineering. Right, here we go. Of course, that's easier said than done. If you want to establish a new branch of engineering, there are some big questions you need to be asking. Questions about who are going to be those practitioners? What would you teach them? What would their jobs look like? How would that unfold? So at the Institute, we've been doing a couple of things. We kicked off a new educational program two years ago. We figured, well, if you need to build a branch of engineering, you could just try teaching it into existence. Radical experiment. We also tried to study it into existence. So go look at places where cyber physical systems are already happening and look at what the both problems and perils and possibilities have been. Or you could go at it another way, which is to think about what are the kind of questions you would need to ask of those systems and how would you go about answering them? The good news in all of this is that establishing branches of engineering is, whilst non-trivial, it's also not a new thing. First branches of engineering were established in Paris with the Ecole Polytechnic, at Stanford with computer science, at Wharton with business schools. So there's lots of ways of thinking about this, right? But we thought we should start with some questions. And for us, there are six big ideas that help you think about how to build those systems, how to regulate those systems, how to decommission those systems, how to operate safely with those systems. First question is, is that cyber-physical system really autonomous? And if so, what does that mean? How do you engineer it? How do you secure it? How do you regulate it? How do you think about what that actually means from a policy point of view? Because not all autonomy is built the same way. How do you think about whether those systems have agency? Or put another way, what are the controls and limits on those systems and where do they sit? Are they inside the systems? Are they outside the systems? Are they software? Are they hardware? Who gets to activate them and under what circumstances? How do you secure them? How do you evolve them over time? Because surely those systems will change over time. Think back to the steam engines. Third set of questions have to do with assurance. How do you know if the system is safe, reliable, trustworthy? How do you configure risk and liability? How do you think about privacy and trust? manageability, explicability, legislation, ethics, standards. It is an entire portfolio of questions that require work and attention. How do you think about what the indicators of those systems are gonna be? As in, what are gonna be the metrics we use to know if cyber physical systems are working well or not? 
Much of the first three ways of the Industrial Revolution centered on ideas about efficiencies and productivities. I think we could also reasonably ask ourselves about safety and sustainability. How would we make those inter indicators? What would the metrices be and who would get to look at them and think about them? Of course, cyber-physical systems at scale also raise questions about interfaces and interactions. How are we going to engage with those systems? Will we engage with them? Will they engage with each other? What will that all look like? And what will it mean to have a whole series of technologies with which we are deeply familiar suddenly change their behavior? If you put AI inside an elevator bank, the elevators behave differently. And as humans, we stand there trying to work out why there are no buttons inside the lift compartment we find ourselves in. How we build interfaces to those next generation technical systems is an open and interesting challenge. And the last question, which is sometimes also the first question, what are the intentions of these systems? Why are they being built? What is the idea of the world that they are making and promulgating? And how might we critically interrogate that idea? Big questions. Backending those questions is just a little bit of cheeky and retro theory. I don't think you can talk about cyber physical systems without dwelling on the systems piece and the cyber piece. And for me, that means going back to the work that was done in the 1940s by Norbert Wiener and at the Macy's Cybernetics Conferences. For Norbert, the notion of cybernetics was the scientific study of control and communications in animals and the machine. For his colleagues, these were conversations about how did you imagine a world where the system would need by necessity to include technology, culture, and the ecology. But if you go back to those early conversations in the 1940s and you go back to those first attempts to imagine what cybernetics might be, it wasn't so much about computing as it was about technology. And it wasn't so much about computing as it was about the notion of sophisticated technical systems. And whilst we now understand cybernetics as being about computing, it wasn't always that way. The earliest conversations at the Macy's conference were about how the brain worked, about how systems worked, about how animals and humans learnt. They were about what we dreamed. They were about what we talked about. And for Norbert and many of those early conversationalists, cybernetics was as much about the system and about the feedback loop as it was about the technology upon which it later came to be built. In reaching back to cybernetics as one of the theoretical underpinnings of this new branch of engineering, what I hope we're also doing is creating space to imagine different ways of thinking about technology one of the most remarkable things about the Bawarana fish traps is to imagine this is a technical system that is hundreds of years in the making. This is a technical system that required concerted and continuous effort. This was not a quick fix. This is not a quick software drop overnight. This is something that required generations both of accumulated knowledge about how the environment worked, accumulated knowledge about hydrology and about fish, but also an accumulated commitment to continuing to build, sustain, and upgrade that system over time. And I think about the fact that it was possible to be cybernetic without computing. And I wonder what lessons we can pull through from that original system. Ideas about sustainability, ideas about systems that are decades or centuries in the making, ideas about systems that endure and systems that are built explicitly to endure, and systems that are built to ensure the continuities of culture feel to me like the kind of systems that we might want to be investing in now in the 21st century. And so for me, when we think about using cybernetics as a tool, it's also about being able to bring through those older, more enduring stories and finding a way to theorize them alongside and in partnership with contemporary technology.
And so as we imagine these cyber-physical systems, this fourth wave of the Industrial Revolution, the piece for me isn't just about how do we build them and think about their economic consequences, it's also how do we theorise them? And in theorising them, how do we ensure that we are asking the right questions about those systems and insisting that certain pieces sit inside those systems? So talking about an AI-driven world, an AI-ready society, a cyber-physical system world, without also talking about the people piece and the environmental piece is for me a conversation only half had. So as we start to build the next industrial revolution, as we start to build the new branch of engineering here, for us it's about how do we take those questions and those technical systems, but also insist over and over again that people and the environment need to be part of it too. So here's the thing that being in Silicon Valley taught me acutely, is that whilst we may tell stories about lone inventors, we never actually do it alone. So I need help. If you're crazy enough to stand up and say you're going to build a new branch of engineering, you should never do it alone. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have all kinds of people come and join me on this mad adventure. And we are just in the process now of recruiting for our third cohort of students. Uh, applications are open now. You can find the URL right here. If you suddenly feel a need or you can think of someone who should be <laughs> participating in this, please send them our way. And if you are interested in any of this conversation, will you find us? Because I don't want to do this by myself and I don't think we should do it alone. And I think this is a conversation that should involve, well, many, many different voices, as many voices as we can possibly sustain. Because Fourth Industrial Revolution requires a different approach than the previous three, and I want to ensure that approach is one that is deeply embedded in conversations about safety and sustainability and, well, responsibility. And for me, that conversation is one that requires as many different people as I can. So the invitation is there. And with that, I want to stop and say thank you. Thank you, Genevieve. That was fantastic. Um, we're going to be pulling your feed in from Australia Live, as well as from Kevin Kelly here in California. Welcome, Genevieve. Hi. Hey, hey guys. Uh, so, I mean, I realized as I was doing a search for your email, Genevieve, that the first email exchanges we had, I think, are in 1998 um, from when you were an advisor to the Rosetta Project. And I'd kind of forgotten how long that had gone back. Um, but it's great to kind of come full circle now um, with you here. And, and the um, your opening example of this 40,000 year system that, um, that was used in Australia uh, to catch fish, what I love about it is it was clearly so iterative. And you know, while it was a big system, any child with the right knowledge could walk out and put a rock and, and repair it in a way, um, or help it, um, or hurt it to a certain extent, I guess, by taking a rock away. But the um, the the friendliness, the kind of, of that technology and its iterative nature is so unlike the technologies that we have now that seem so fragile. Um, but um, can you say a little bit about why it stopped being in use about a hundred years ago? It's a story about what happens when an indigenous system runs headlong into a colonial expansion. So that river was a river being used uh, by boats to move goods and services around. Uh, it was a river that had a series of uh, European dams and water uh, containment strategies implied upon it. 
it was also a system where early settlers saw those rocks that were beautifully worn from all that time in the river and took rocks out of that system and used them to build the foundations of many buildings around the river system. And it's also a system, the custodians of it found themselves being moved off that country and not able to be there and move across their land in the ways they had. So the decline of that system is also a story about the unfolding of and the clash of cultures and technical systems. Today, there is a really quite extraordinary cultural museum on that site and the local elders and traditional owners of that place are slowly, steadily rehabilitating the site and the weir and the river. Uh, and the water flowed through it for the first time in about five years, just this winter when we had rain again. Oh, that's very cool. Um, I, I think one of the things you mentioned towards the end also is that um, this fourth revolution, like all the other revolutions, are kind of defined by the people that that build it. And um, how how are you seeing that more voices, uh, more cultures are being invited into the the way this fourth revolution comes about? Oh, listen, it's such a good question, uh, Xander, because I mean, I think there is this way where we think about the first industrial revolution, and most of our, uh, I think, our imagination is occupied by the dark satanic mills in Britain, right? It really does have that kind of feel to it. Mass production and electricity feels like an American story and in some ways a Midwestern story. Uh, computing feels very much like a, a West Coast story. I think the remarkable thing that we have seen over the last, well, 20 years that we've all been in conversations is that centers of innovation and creation are now visible to all of us. I think they were always there, but they're visible in many other places, whether it is the work that goes on in India, in Israel, in Latin America, in China, across the greater Asian kind of ring of countries. There are multiple centers of innovation and invention in this space, both in terms of what AI will be and how it's being un sort of unfolded, but also the systems into which it is being employed and I think even increasingly in places like Silicon Valley and other more traditional centers, we are seeing a diversity of voices and experiences. Never enough as far as I'm concerned, but at least it's an improvement on what it was 20 years ago. Right. A lot of those pictures that you had of those early inventors were pretty much all white guys. It was unfortunate. <laughs> well, and there's always, there's always other people in those stories, but the amount of work you have to do to go find them is kind of the perennial bit about how do we ensure that we're telling telling stories about our histories that are actually closer to what was really going on and not the story that gets sort of happily retold. So I think there are always places we can put back experiences that were relevant into those stories. But you're right, that's a, it's, a, it's a narrow band. <laughs> well, one more before I, I hand it off to uh, Kevin for a couple questions. But uh, Renata Barreto from uh, Facebook, um, she she points out that you mentioned scale several times in the earlier revolutions um, and that um, and wants to know how that fits into scaling issues for um, for this fourth revolution. And I think in a way what's funny about this one is that it's kind of scales. The scale is almost daunting of of this current revolution, um, not so much in that we have to build it and that is it upon us. And then how do we enter into that scale in a human way? Yeah, I think the interesting thing for me about scale is both the ways in which it's often only visible when it breaks. 
So, you know, if you think about some of the infrastructures of the 20th century, they only became clear to us when they stopped working. So I think about the massive power outages in Northern California late last year. I think about the uh, bushfires that ran through Australia over our holiday periods at the end of last year into the beginning of this year, where our electrical grid was suddenly compromised, as was our telecommunications grid. And I think there's a piece about some of those scales felt inevitable and now seem much more brittle than they were. And then for this most recent wave, part of the scale has been likewise invisible. I mean, part of what made the AI revolution, if you want to describe it as that, over the last decade possible was the abundance of data. And data is often invisible to us until it's played back to us, both either in the breach of it, where we suddenly go, hey, wait, how did you know that? Or when we see the collection practices that were otherwise in some ways quite subterranean being held in clear light. And for me, one of the complicated things about scale in this moment is both that there are ubiquitous systems that are quite uh, brittle, and then there are subtler pieces at work that are not yet visible, and somewhere in the combination of those two things is scale. Yeah, no, I think um, my favorite definition of technology from Danny Hillis is it's the stuff that doesn't quite work yet. And in the case of things like the electrical grid refailing, it's, it's falling back into the to the term of technology instead of just the things we take for granted. Oh, uh, for me, you know, the, the the arc of the beginning of the 21st century has been a series of stories we tell about technologies that are reliant on things that we thought were stable in the 20th century that are nowhere near as stable as we thought they were, and not just technical systems, social ones too, right? How do we think about civic and civil society? How do we think about ideas about democracy? All of those feel differently brittle too. Kevin? Yeah. Um, so, Genevieve, your categories of the four revolutions, I think, is really brilliant and right on. Um, but I have an impression that, unlike maybe the first three revolutions, that people in, in a, on a large scale are talking about this revolution before it's actually happened. I mean, the number of discussions, almost like this one, where we're talking about AI long before there really is any AI, I think is kind of unique in the sense that I don't think um, the first three revolutions, people were talking about the consequences of electricity years before everybody had it. Is, 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 is this a correct assessment? I suspect for some of those other revolutions, there was a degree of the spectacle that pre predated the technology. So I think about Crystal Palace in the 1850s and those early battles for the light, the battles of the light bulbs in Paris in the 1880s, right? And that's sort of 70 years before we got to mainstreaming of electricity. And there were certainly in Britain and Australia, royal commissions and investigations about what the consequences of electricity would be. Same in the United States, there's a quite famous congressional hearing about domestic electricity at the turn of the last century. So there were definitely conversations that preceded the ubiquity of the technology. And there was always in those previous waves a sense of there needed to be this kind of moment where the technology and all of its full potential was on display and people went and saw it before it ever came into their homes and their lives. So I wonder in some ways if the conversations we're having now are the replacement of that, mm. sort of the moral equivalent of the Crystal Palace and the world's fears, that what we're actually having is something that at least has echoes in the past. Though I think mm. you're right, there is a degree of conversation and specificity about this one that wasn't in the previous ones, but I wonder if we're also informed by that. Yeah. <laughs> we know what happened in those previous ones. So now we're like, wait, I have other questions. And do you have a sense of how the degree of um, 
I wouldn't call it resistance, but say criticism, thoughtful thinking, skepticism uh, is compared to the uh, is in this uh, revolution compared to the other three. Was there as much um, wringing of hands and um, fear of it? I mean, there was the Luddites, but I'm not really sure there was as I guess there was a little bit in like the computers when they first come, they were big and scary. Do, do, do you have a sense of how this cycle compares to the uh, of, of criticism and, and skepticism compares to the previous three? Listen, it's it's another good question, Kevin. I think all of those previous waves were accompanied by aggressive boosters and people with utopian stories and equally aggressive people with dystopian narratives. And, you know, the early uh, stories about electricity are kind of remarkable, right? I mean, there's a whole fear in the United States that if we electrify people's homes, women and children will be vulnerable because we'll be able to see them at home. And so electricity at home was seen as being really a problem. Same with electrical cooking appliances, same with the, you know, appearance of refrigerators, all of that was seen as deeply troubling. We also know there was an inordinate set of critical voices rehearsed in the trade union movement as well as the labour movement more broadly about mass production and the loss of skills both in the first industrial revolution and the second. It's certainly the case when computers were starting to mainstream that you had a number of very clear voices in the United States worrying about automation. Uh, there's a quite remarkable manifesto written in the 1960s called the Triple Revolution that basically critiques the appearance of automation, social revolution, and defense funding to say, does this really build a society that we want to live in? It's a prescient document when you read it. So I think those voices have always been there. They were just rehearsed in different kinds of places, right? You know, you found them in the pages of government hansards and in lobby groups. And also in the pages of the newspaper. I mean, the kind of uh, stories about demonic railway trains and runaway trains are rife through British newspapers and magazines in the 1800s. And unsurprisingly, they were quite dangerous objects, right? So I think that critical voice has always been there. It just tuned in on different frequencies. I think that what's also interesting, you mentioned the intentionality of things and how something like the steam engine was invented for, you know, dewatering mines. Um, and, you know, we, the fact that, you know, GPS was invented for the military to know where it is. But all of these things obviously get built into a world if they work well enough, um, where they take on whole new lives of their own. And, and I think there's what you know where does intentionality fit into ai i think kevin you're famous for saying you know there's a lot of new companies that just need to take what they have and add ai um but um what's the where does intentionality really come into ai Xander, I think it's also a question of what are the longer term consequences, right? We can talk a lot about the transition from the atmospheric engine, you know, pipe pumping water out of mines to make them safer, to the railway system. What we often don't talk about is that in order to make that railway system function at scale, we had to invent time. So, you know, one of the really unexpected consequences of railway expansion was that you had to have this moment where in order to share train tracks and in order to make trains quote unquote run on time so to have a schedule that was effective, you needed to have a shared agreement about time. And in England in the 1800s, every town had their own time. I mean, there was Greenwich Mean, but not everyone used it. So you had the clock above the town hall and the mayor would go out, stand in the middle of the square, look up and the sun was directly above, they'd set the clock at midday. That's great, but you get a bit of variance between London and Glasgow couple of minutes, which isn't much in the grander scheme of things, but when you're running a railway is the difference between a catastrophic accident and not having one. And the railways all proposed to create their own time zone, which they did, and they put a railway 
a clock on every railway station. And for 40 years in Britain, you had local time and railway time. And it took an act of parliament in 1881 to make railway time into standard time. And so when I think about AI, I wonder not just about what is it that people imagine they're doing with it, but what will be the other quote unquote unintended consequences that will be necessary in order for those systems to actually function effectively. So I always think there's a question we should ask about intentionality, like what is the world you imagine you are building and who are you to get to imagine that? Yeah. And what does your imagination include and be silent to? We don't talk a lot when we talk about AI about how much electricity it takes. <laughs> like, you know, storing data and circulating data and curating data and having access to data is an extraordinarily energy intensive thing. 10% of the world's energy budget spent on server farms currently. That seems like a, hardly a conversation you'd want to be silent to, but it's not usually the thing we lead with. Hey, your AI is costing electricity. <laughs> it's not usually the first place we go. But frankly, for me, it is one of the pieces that I keep wanting to pull into the conversation when we talk about intentionality is also the bit about, is this actually a sustainable thing? And what would it mean to ask a different question about all of that? Right. So uh, just as the previous revolution invented time, I think what the fourth revolution uh, is going to invent is actually intelligence. We we have no idea what intelligence is really. And what it's going to, what this is going to do is actually create this very vast landscape that's much vaster than our concepts of it of ourselves it's it's, it's a actually huge space of which our own intelligence is one little corner of it so what it's going to actually curate or invent is actually intelligence itself i mean the concept the 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 the, the shape of it the the it's right now it's like a for amorphous vague hand-waving thing but it'll become a concrete specific thing with dimensions and metrics and things that we can actually talk about in a real way and so just as time kind of did exist before the revolution it was crystallized by it and we could measure it in the same way intelligence obviously existed but it's going to become manifest and um incarnated in a way um, that was not present before, and it'll become a very specific thing that we can actually talk about scientifically. Yeah, well, McCarthy, one of the early voices in the AI debates, right, one of those original attendants of the conference in 56 at Dartmouth, he was very clear that if you got to a point where these systems could think, they would actually believe. And he and I think Turing, too, were both quite clear that whatever the intelligence of the machines would be would be quite different than human yeah. intelligence. And that would require us to then have a much more nuanced debate about what it meant to be intelligent and also conscious and also sentient. Yep. And that notion that kind of is riven through the 1956 kind of conference that if we can just break down intelligence into small enough pieces that a machine can do it is clearly the kind of industrial revolution talk. But it's also clear that all the participants there are secretly hoping that they might get to something a little bit more uh, both novel and I think more provocative at some level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We have a question from uh, one of the streams, David McClota from YouTube. Um, He's asking, like, what enduring understandings about AI should STEM high school, and I think we could probably extend this into undergraduate programs, um, be paying attention to? Uh, you know, basically, what are the principles that you want your students in your graduate program walking into your program with? Here at, at the ANU, in the Institute, we try to teach our students three things. And it's going to sound a little bit corny, right? I actually think you have to engage people's heads, their hands, and their hearts. So all of our students learn the basic building blocks of AI. So they all learn how to code, 
It's Python at the moment. I learned Pascal because I'm that kind of vintage. <laughs> I haven't had to use it in a long time, but knowing how it works helps you look at most programming languages. So we teach everyone a little bit of exposure to coding and to data, to algorithms, to sensors, also to physical systems, because it's one thing to think about AI as code. It's another thing to realize it's mostly going to be in physical objects that do things and understanding that interaction, hugely important. So building blocks to AI. We also teach a set of foundational building block critical question asking, because it turns out, I think one of the most important things you can do, and I always realize I manifest it wherever I go, is work out not how to build the solution, but how to ask the right questions to get to the space that a problem needs to be solved. Not every problem that is given to you is the problem that ought to be solved. It's sometimes not even the right problem to articulate. So teach our students the building blocks of the technical systems, teach our students how to ask a set of critical questions, and always lead with the proposition that whatever you are building needs to make the world a better place than it was when you found it, which means you actually have to be really clear about who are you building systems for and why, what might those systems do. So for us, it's an approach that blends uh, lectures and reading with lab classes and project work. I hugely believe that you have to be in it with other people. I think one of the hardest things for us about the experience of the pandemic here in Australia was, as I know it has been for many in the US, was sending our students home. And I think for me, being able to have our students back at least a little bit at the moment has been a hugely important thing because there's something about the way we learn through our bodies and through our social interactions. But if the question was, what would I be encouraging high school students to think about? Listen, I always go back to Norbert Wiener. Uh, and in 1950, Norbert wrote this great prologue to a play he was putting on at MIT. And he said that in the world that was coming, he thought that perhaps the poets would need to be engineers or the engineers would need to be poets. And I actually think in the 21st century, what I would say is the poets should be engineers and the engineers should be poets. So I would encourage people to do both the STEM field and then into the humanities and the social sciences too, because I think you need to have both of those pieces of the puzzle all the time. Thanks. Um and just, I wanted to make sure we are def defining really what we're talking about here too. I think we kind of jumped into this, but Ron Wolf, uh, one of the people on online is asking, you know, when we say AI, you know, it's different than machine learning, which seems to be better defined. When you say AI, what are you, where, where are you, where on the spectrum of AI are you, are you landing? So for me, when I talk about AI, I am in fact going back to 1956 and to the original uh, formulation of AI and the original articulation of it, uh, where at that point AI was described as um, we want to be able to so precisely describe intelligence that a machine can be made to simulate it, and we're interested in four things. Uh, a machine that will understand human language, a machine that would understand abstractions and concepts, a machine that would be able to learn for itself, and a machine that would be able to ultimately do things that humans could do. So when I think about AI, Absolutely, it requires data and machine learning and algorithms and sensors and some form of logic that holds all that together. But for me, AI is not synonymous with machine learning. It's more than that. And I think the important pieces back in 56, and I would still argue important today, are that notion of both abstraction and uh, learning and change over time. So there was another um, question from um, Pete Leiden um, in the... Um in the streams and he was when he was saying you know the the first couple of um revolutions may not be as as crucial as this one because they were basically driven by humans but we have this feeling that 
with the kind of AI that you were talking about, there's a, there's another present. There's something else present, maybe guiding it, than just humans. And that is maybe a little scary because as you describe the AI just now, that is almost kind of other than human. And so that's what can set some people off is, well, there's there's a whole other presence here that's not just human. Do you think that's true? <laughs> Listen, I think our ability to make sense of and think about technologies mm -hmm. is also shaped by a much broader set of conversations, right? It is shaped by what we would talk of as the socio-technical imagination, right? So when we see a piece of technology, we also have a whole series of stories in our heads about other pieces of the puzzle. So when we look at intelligent systems, somewhere in many of our heads, there is Frankenstein and the Terminator and maybe Gollum and a few other pieces of the puzzle that say intelligent systems that aren't human. That's not a story that ends well. It's also the case that we have a very hard time imagining in certain cultural traditions what it means to think of something else as being sentient or something else as having agency or autonomy. Uh, and sometimes we tend to imagine in the Western tradition at least that the pinnacle is humans up here, everything else down here. And humans are the only things that get to be sentient and conscious and thus also acting. And so imagining that there are other systems that may be self-reproducing or learning or having conscience or sentience seems strange in our tradition and not always in others. Uh, do I imagine that this is being guided from elsewhere? Not yet. Uh, and I'm not even sure that I believe that it would be. Uh, my favorite roboticist is a Japanese uh, roboticist by the name of Mori. And Mori always sort of argues two things, right? One, he at one point rather delightfully wrote that he thought robots would be better Buddhists than humans because they were <laughs> capable of infinite patience and infinite grace. And that's kind of a lovely conception. But he also says that our greatest anxieties about computational other are actually just a manifestation and not just are a manifestation of our own anxieties about ourselves. And we project them onto the robotic and artificial intelligent objects because ultimately whilst those systems will learn, the way they will learn is still governed and written by the rules that humans write. And so if there's a thing to be fearful in all of this, I hate to say it may still be humans. <laughs> well, it actually feeds into a great, uh, this next question from Jalu. Um, how much would the nation in which an AI emerges, I assume he means something sentient, um, have an impact on the personality and ultimate goals of said AI? So like, where, where do you, are you already seeing differences in Japanese um, systems and Chinese systems and American systems and European systems? Listen, my suspicion is one of the most uh, complicated pieces of this conversation is we always make AI singular. We say AI, and the reality is we are talking about AIs, and that sounds terrible with an Australian accent and probably not much better <laughs> with yours. Um, but the reality is there won't be one AI, there'll be many. And the reality is they won't all necessarily be even of the same valence or the same sensibilities. So in one of the office buildings I used to visit in Sydney, uh, there are three towers next to each other and three different elevator stacks. And each one of those elevator stacks is running a lightweight AI learning system. And the elevators in each one of those stacks behave completely differently from each other and completely differently from how they behaved three years ago in terms of where they arrange themselves in the building, in terms of time between a button call and a lift appearing, in terms of uh, energy use and traffic. And over time, those lifts have diverted, diverged from each other. And so if you take something as simple as a lift and imagine three instantiations all behave differently because of the inhabitants in the building, you have to imagine that multiple AIs in multiple countries will behave differently, partly because they are built with different sensibilities. So different ideas about what is the 
world that they are inhabiting from really straightforward and simple stuff like localization strategies to more complicated stuff like what is the data that's being fed into them? What are the algorithms that are being written in them? What are the notions about how things should and shouldn't unfold? Uh, you know, so the idea of an American AI or an Australian AI, not so hard to imagine. I mean, some of the earliest instantiations of autonomous vehicles, there was a large European manufacturer who sent their cars to Australia to do an autonomous road test because we've got a lot of space here. Um, and these vehicles had been taught to recognize certain kinds of dangers by the side of the road and living animals in particular. Um, unfortunately, they'd been programmed for big things with four legs, not bouncy things with two legs. And uh, the kangaroo problem turned out to be an inordinate <laughs> problem. Because the thing about, you know, we know for vehicles, right, when you're looking forward, you're trying to gauge the distance between you and the thing ahead of you. And the thing about kangaroos is they're there, then they go up. And so as far as the car was concerned, they had disappeared and then they came down again, not so much disappearing. Uh, if you're an Australian driver, you're like, yeah, no, mate, we know that. It, th this car can be like, oh, not good. And there was a period of time that was really not good. And I shouldn't joke because it was actually, you know, quite devastating at multiple levels. But it was clear that that was a technical system that had a whole world built into it that wasn't ready to contend with the world in which it found itself. And I imagine there'll be lots of examples like that that are far less benign. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we have that, I mean, a, a, more, a more benign one is here in San Francisco, you know, everyone with their track bikes, which they hold still at a stop sign by rocking back and forth in their pedals. And so the, the autonomous cars would always think that the bicyclist was about to go. And so the autonomous car would kind of inch one inch at, at a time across the intersection. Uh, it was pretty funny. Um, but um, I think we're, we're coming pretty close to the end here. Do you have any ending questions, Kevin? Yeah, so... Um we're always interested in, in the long term and how these kinds of skills might be applied to a civilization. You had the six questions that you were sort of asking um, or trying to apply to this revolution. What would success look like for your program in, say, 30 years or 40 years? If you were wildly successful, what would you think would be present in the world that isn't right now? Oh, Kevin, can you be my fairy godmother? I love the notion that I've got 30 to 40 years. That's great. I keep thinking I have two. Um, so if we are successful here over that long horizon, I'd hope for three things. I'd hope that this discipline finally has a name as opposed to what we call it now, the new branch of engineering, which is a terrible acronym. Um, I'd hope that we've actually birthed a new discipline and that the practitioners of that discipline, much like their forebearers in electrical engineering and computer science and civil engineering, are now part and parcel of building a world that we can all inhabit. So an established branch of engineering, an established set of practitioners, and ultimately both of those things in service of actually building a world that many more of us can inhabit and a world that felt slightly more sustainable and a lot safer and a hell of a lot more responsible. So for me, what success there would look like was actually building practitioners who shaped a world that was a better place for all of us. Well, thank thank you, you so much, Genevieve. It's this was really great. great. And uh, I really want to thank your technical team in Australia who did a fantastic job um, pulling this all together as well as our technical team here on the West Coast of uh, North America. Um, and thank you all for watching. Um, the, Genevieve, can you just um, say you, one more time that you have openings in your program this fall? And I think we had the URL on there, and I know it'll be posted on the stream. So, um, yeah, how do we find you? Yep, we're recruiting for our third cohort now. We start in the, uh, we go on the calendar year, so we would start in February of 2021. We are taking a uh, 
admissions currently, or we are looking for our next cohort of students. Uh, we have a pretty robust back set of backgrounds and background stories. So you can find more information on the web and I believe applications will close in 10 days time. So if you or someone you know thinks this is interesting, please send them our way. Cool. Well, yeah, I wish I could apply right now. All right. Thank I would you very love to have you come. Will you promise that you'll come visit when we can let you back across the border? Trust me, as many places I want to go and Australia is certainly one of them. Thank you so much. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Thank you for listening.